0: Hello and welcome back to Dr. Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 5. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Dr. Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Munro, a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England. I work as a freelance clinical editor at the BMJ. In our new season of Doctor Informed, we will be discussing topics that doctors might find a bit tricky or uncomfortable, or just a little bit awkward to discuss. While I've really tried to avoid this topic for a season and a half, one such topic that is really important is death and dying. In a profession that most of us go into to fix people, death can feel like a term loaded with failure to many of us. But is it actually an essential part of our duty as a doctor to help create the best death possible? What does this look like? And is it the same for all of us? Despite communication training being built into most medical school curriculum, discussion about death and dying are still topics that many clinicians may feel are heart sink conversations. Is this ubiquitous or do some people feel more empowered or even in their comfort zone having these conversations? Here to talk with us about this today is our expert, Professor Mark Torbert. Mark, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hi, Clara. Hi, everyone. And yeah, fantastic to be able to contribute to this uh, podcast. I'm a palliative care consultant. I work in, in Cardiff. I work in a cancer centre and in a university hospital, University Hospital of Llandock. And um, yeah, I, I have an interest in, in palliative care, of course, end-of-life care, uh, but also having good and open discussions about people what might happen towards the end of life and, and and what choices there are and and what things can be decided upon and and i try and do so in a, in a in a way in a fashion that is clear understandable sometimes quite frank but also gives people the opportunity to give a voice to a sometimes difficult to broach area and an area that some people including doctors including my younger self sometimes try and avoid <laughs>
0: But well, it's brilliant to have you with us, uh, and I'm I'm really fascinated to hear your thoughts on this, Mark. Thank you for joining us. We are also joined by Cat Shelley. Cat, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and
2: how you came to meet Mark? Hi, Clara. Thanks for having me. So, yes, I'm Cat Shelley. Um, I am living with stage four breast cancer, uh, and I'm on my fifth line um, palliative chemotherapy agent. I met Mark through the Valindra Cancer Hospital where I am currently receiving my treatment, um, and I was referred to him um, for symptom management with my disease um, problems. So, yeah, we have a patient uh, doctor relationship. Apart from that, I also happen to be an ST5 anaesthetic trainee um, in Cardiff, in Wales. Uh, so, I've got two hats on today, probably, but very happy to share either side of those experiences.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, and um, again, it's it's an absolute pleasure to um to have you with us and and to have you share with us bravely your story because I think you'll have a very very unique perspective. And lastly, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to our new panelist, Lucianne Frank. Lucianne, can you tell our
3: listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So. Um, I'm an elderly care consultant Um, I finished my training in May 2021 started being a consultant last July Um, I'm currently however on maternity leave so I'm an elderly care consultant and do a mixture of inpatient elderly care work but but predominantly actually frailty work so looking after older patients in A&E and making a good plan for them and getting them home if we can that sort of thing and I started listening to the podcast during my work commute and then when Clara put a call out basically asking to widen a list of panelists I got in contact with you, and so this is my first time doing a podcast, and I'm quite excited about that.
0: <laughs> I'm going to start with you, Mark, because when you contacted me, you directed me to uh, Talk CPR, uh, the website that you helped put together. What motivated you to do that, and why did you feel that that was important at that time?
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, everything starts with a bit of a story, doesn't it? (laughs) And uh, I I remember I was a junior doctor in in Birmingham many moons ago. I think it was the year 2000 or 2001. I remember vividly uh, running down a very long corridor at a very early hour in the morning and then uh, arriving at a sort of scene uh, where, you know, your typical sort of arrest call has, has gone out. and. There was a a, a a person in the bed and they were receiving chest compressions, and this was a frail, cachectic, elderly uh, lady, and uh, we did the we went th- through the 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 motions of chest compression and and then the um, the defibrillator say said, "This is not a shockable rhythm, basically. I think she may have been in in pulses electrical activity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and and what we, what the team had sort of done to her beforehand, it just it just felt very undignified. Mm-hmm. And uh, rib, ribs were breaking. The the chest was being caved in uh, with this sort of um, view towards giving CPR, keeping her uh, alive. But it, it felt like she had already died—a a natural dying event—and and we were just messing around really. And this was an awful indignity to do some to do to someone and. Uh, this sort of continued. I mean, uh, rarely there was a CPR event that was successful. So in some other cases, we had CPR that was witnessed by the family and the relatives. And sometimes people came back to me later saying, Mark, why did you do that? Mm. I, I just don't understand why you did that. Why couldn't you think beforehand that this might not be something that is, is appropriate? And, and and I thought about that for a long time. And, and then we... We really wanted to do something to create a, a better narrative because i felt at the time that many people thought that cpr is a highly successful event they look at football players yeah. who've collapsed and then they receive cpr and then they're back to the next tournament fit and well with a pacemaker sight. and i thought there was a a narrative here where there's a lot of things that are not understood, not maybe not understood by the general public. And yes, CPR has been very successful for certain groups of people. Um, you know, it's successful perhaps when there is actually a cardiac arrest, but it's unsuccessful and zero, actually 0% uh, successful when it comes to natural dying events. And I, I often felt that that was missing a bit in the narrative, that you, you sort of, Your long distance runner who at a half marathon or at the end of a marathon collapses and goes straight to the floor without even touching the ground with their hands basically and has a sudden cardiac arrest uh, is very different to someone who has very advanced disease has you know uh, an advanced cancer that's spread everywhere in the body and maybe other healthcare conditions mm. as well COPD renal failure etc cetera, etc cetera. and the success rates are very different and so what we decided to do was create some 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 videos and you know the the trust initially here said mark don't be so ridiculous you can't create DNA CPR videos who would watch that it's a really dreary topic and <laughs> you know what, what what are you trying to achieve and i said well trying to just get a better sort of understanding of this out there and maybe if we reach just one or two people initially maybe that'll be something already and, and actually creating videos that say well, yes CPR can be very successful in some people in some certain situations but even for young people who are very fit and have a sudden event you know success rates aren't massive but then when you break it down and a big meta-analysis showed this actually into people who've got underlying conditions such as advanced metastatic cancer for instance or uh, a really bad renal failure mm-hmm. for instance or who've been admitted uh, for uh, for lung conditions etc cetera, etc cetera, then the percentages for survival to discharge from hospital go go down into the single percent figures sometimes less than sort of 1.9 percent even less of, uh, of that sometimes and 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 people don't know that and so we created these videos and they went out and they've They've been, I think they've been viewed over half a million times and they're on YouTube under Talk CPR. But we also have the talkcpr.com website with the videos. And uh, we've just kept going over the years and we've had patients get involved. Patient representatives actually helped direct the first Talk CPR movies. Um, People who feel very strongly about the topic, who feel very informed, but feel that other patients ought to be informed about this as well.
0: Thank you for sharing, Mark, and I mean that work is is really is fantastic. Um, I before we get everyone else's views, I just want to pick up on something that you said. And I think you mentioned it twice. You talk about a natural death, and I'm I guess I'm kind of interested turning that on its head. Is is there such thing as an unnatural death? And if not, what what do you mean by a natural death?
1: Oh, you've got me there. That's a, <laughs> that's a good one. And and actually actually natural dying, natural death. I mean, um, yeah. Catherine Mannix, a great colleague of mine who I really like, talks more about the term ordinary dying. Mm. Um, and I suppose ordinary dying for a palliative care physician or, or maybe a district nurse or a GP is is someone who perhaps dies over several hours or several days, for instance. Mm. And I think, you know, we've, we've all seen that someone becomes progressively... Less, less well less conscious for instance and goes into kind of a um, more sleepy phase uh, sometimes it's less responsive over the last 24 hours of their life um, if you wanted me to be very technical sort of the sort of uh, ordinary dying is often a sort of when you look at the heart for instance so maybe starts off then with the organs shutting down very gradually. Mm. And actually the, the, the heart is the last organ to just keep going, keep going, goes then into pulseless electrical activity, then goes into asystole or an agonal rhythm as such. And, and, and the heart being the very last thing that just keeps flickering on, keeps going. You know, you, you can imagine suddenly someone running up with a defibrillator or trying to pump the chest basically the rest of the body has gone you're not going to do anything this is not going to work as such mm. versus maybe i wouldn't call this unnatural dying but let's call it sudden cardiac arrest or an abrupt loss of heart function and this is something that me and kat have discussed so if you're walking around and you say you have a cancer or you've got another condition and you're walking around suddenly you suddenly collapse and go to the floor well, actually, in some ways, you know, maybe that isn't expected. Maybe you're not expecting that mm. because something has gone on. Maybe you've gone into a ventricular fibrillation rhythm, you know. And, you know, for for some people in certain circumstances, maybe younger people where the cancer is nowhere near the mediastinum, nowhere near the heart basically, actually, you know, giving a few zaps of, you know, electrical activity there mm. may actually flip that around quite quickly. We've seen it in, in, in palliative care, even in the hospice settings where, you know, someone, you know, has had an internal pacemaker or where we've even given defibrillation to someone and it's, it's, it's brought them back and they've made a very good recovery. So you see all these different things in palliative and end-of-life care. But I think the distinction between sort of a, a more sudden cardiac arrest, which is a, perhaps a bit less expected, uh, versus a more ordinary dying event where you sort of maybe it happens over several days and the other organs kind of give up before the very last organ, which is the heart. I think I think that's an important narrative that sometimes gets missed a little bit. And I think we need to, in our heads, distinguish between those two a little bit.
0: Mm. Kat, Mark had uh, mentioned there that, that you and him had had conversations about this you're an anaesthetic trainee. Do you think that moving from being an anaesthetist, being a doctor to being a patient has changed your view on what you think about death or what you think about, we mean by a a natural or an unnatural death?
2: Um, Yeah, so I think it it probably really helps um, to have a medical background. um, when you're thinking, when I'm thinking about sort of death and dying and end of life um and mark touched on it earlier when you know um he suggested that it's possible that the general public have um a, maybe a different opinion or view of how successful cpr is mm. um we see in hospital especially in the secondary care and the acute setting that that isn't always the case and we've seen you know the sort of the arrest calls we've seen the A&E, um, deaths and we've seen the what some people what I would call slightly undignified you Mm. know death and and we can see how the outcomes aren't always great and and I think most of us don't really wouldn't want that for ourselves or for our loved ones but I don't know if most of the general public are quite aware of the intricacies of what happens um when you have CPR or even when you have you know organ support in intensive care, for example, um, I do wonder um, what the actual understanding of it is. And I do feel lucky in a way that I, I have seen it firsthand. And so I do, I do have perhaps the better appreciation and opinion of what I would want for myself at the end of life. So I think it has definitely influenced how I feel and my wishes as well. What drove you to get involved
0: with, uh, with the Talk CPR project?
2: Um, it was my relationship with um uh, Mark really. Um, you know, we we started off um our relationship um mainly dealing with my symptoms um and how to control them and they were mainly pain pain management. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when we got um on top of the pain it was Mark that actually um and this is probably another segue into how to start the conversation. But, you know, Mark said, look, now that we've got your symptoms under control, you know, i like to take this opportunity to talk about some other things. Um, and that's when he brought up um, CPR and um, sort of end of life wishes, advanced directors, that sort of thing. And we just got chatting. And actually, you know, I think I don't know if I might, you can tell me if it's true or not, Mark. But I think I surprised you with how positively I responded to you bringing up uh, the subject and I was actually quite relieved that you did bring it up and that we could actually talk about it and it just um, went from there really. Mm.
1: Well well, I mean I can say now you're a very very difficult and challenging patient. uh,
2: (laughs) I've been told that many times. No no
1: no not at all not at all. No I mean you know, I mean, it, it was it was easy to chat to you about, but but I I must say, and I don't know if if Lucianne is the same or not, my blood pressure and my pulse rate goes up a bit when I'm about to broach the topic, and and, and so I've de- developed different intros and introductions into it a little bit. So sometimes I say, actually, Kat, you're feeling a bit better now, and that might seem strange for me then to bring up a topic which is about you when what happens when you feel worse or when when things mm. deteriorate a little bit. So I I, mm. I do that.
3: I think possibly my dynamic with uh, resuscitation and planning type conversations is potentially different to yours because I'm, so I'm a geriatrician, but I work in secondary care. And I also do uh, general medicine on calls with, with adult patients of different ages, but they, they're pretty much always patients that I've never met before and where my relationship with them is during either an acute inpatient admission when I'm their ward consultant or when I'm on call and it's an an acute capacity because something has happened. Mm. So it's almost like a topic that I'm bringing up without a pre existing relationship with mm. that patient. Um, but even then, I do have different ways of approaching it depending on what the situation is. So, and it depends also if it's with the patient or a lot in my case, it'll be with the family rather than with the patient because of working in elderly care where patients also have cognitive issues and may not have capacity to decide for themselves if it's a patient where the team knows the patient or the junior if it's for example when i'm on call and they've clerked the patient if they've got a really good background history about the patient then my approach will be different if there are also elements about the patient that i don't know at all and that i also need to obtain at the same time i think also one thing that's really changed is that um The topic of CPR and what care someone should receive in the hospital is something that we started to think about and to address with the patient and or with their family as early on as possible in their hospital journey. Whereas I think a few years, even up until a few months or even a few years ago, that was something that could be left for days and days and days. And so it's something that I address a lot, but I think in a different context to you because of the nature of work that we do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I try and bring it into the outpatient setting as, as much as possible. Start these conversations early, and I think I think I think with Kat, I even gave you a sort of a, a warning shot that I might bring it up in the next mm-hmm. clinic, basically. Yeah. And um, but 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 Luciana, I, I also uh, work in university hospital and docs, so I see a lot of elderly patients. I go to the medical admissions unit quite a bit, and and I know what you mean. It's very difficult when you're first meeting a person, basically, and they're very very unwell to actually just jump into this very important, mm. I mean, I think there's such an important topic. I think this is such a big topic. This is such a big deal that it it, it mustn't be diminished in any way. and has to be so individualized to any, any person, to any individual. And sometimes it lends itself better to a second, I guess there's this RCP second conversation project, isn't there? And I think I quite like that because even when you've met the pe- person once, and then you've met them for a second time. Then I, I prefer to bring it up at that point potentially. And as I say, as I said, sometimes when I'm on the respiratory ward, I say to people after their massive pneumonia and they've got other many other healthcare conditions, I will say, look, they've 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 helped you this time round. You're feeling a bit better. They've given you the IV antibiotics and fluids and all the other things and would you want to go through all of this again? Would you want to go through the hospital admission again? Would, And I use the treatment ladder approach, which is also in the talk CPR videos, where we go through all the different potential options when they go back home again and what would happen um, if they had to come back in again, which treatments would it be acceptable and which ones wouldn't be acceptable. And you find such a huge difference between patients. Some say, yes, I would want that blood transfusion again, yes, I would want the IV antibiotics again, yes, I would want to come in for chemotherapy, radiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Others say, no, I would not want to come in again for IV antibiotics, treat me at home as much as you can, and if you can't give me IVs, then just leave it. And then they want to put that into some form of writing basically. And and, and, and then we do that and we, we bespoke it to the individual. And that's not of, often I just talk about DNA CPR forms, but what is also really important are uh, advanced care plans or even advanced decisions to refuse treatment. I think they're incredibly important uh, as well because advanced decisions to refuse treatment, uh, patient filled in documents, patient signed documents, which give very specific instructions about the procedures that one might not want in the future. And that can include CPR, often includes CPR, but it can include other things as well, such as admissions for IV antibiotics or not.
0: I think you've picked up, both of you, on on two, two of the things I wanted to cover today. And I think one of them is about that. Um, I guess that contrast between whether you have a relationship with the patient or whether you don't, because I think that that can make what You know, is a very important discussion, very difficult. And also the fact that, you know, when we talk about death and dying, it's not just about DNA-CPR, it's about all the other stuff that comes in, in between. Um, I'm interested, Mark, do you do you have any advice for those doctors who go and see a patient who comes in incredibly unwell? In my specialty in surgery, you know, quite often I'm going to see them to say, can we do an operation to fix you? And if the answer is no, you know, is the likelihood that this is going to lead to you know good palliation and therefore fairly quickly into meeting a patient, you're having a discussion about what they want at the end of their life, which c- can feel jarring, I think, and it can feel jarring for the patient, particularly and the family. D- do you have any advice about how you can approach those discussions without that relationship
1: there? So I think, I think sometimes it can feel a little bit like a, a rushed journey, mm. can't it? Because the patient has just been given a diagnosis. It's been all mm. very horrible and awful. And, and then suddenly the palliative care person arrives and is talking about death and dying. And I think sometimes what we maybe get wrong, the advice I would give to junior colleagues is that sometimes I think we mistakenly disting, distinguish between active treatments and other and so, what is other? Is 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 all of palliative care? Is all uh, geriatric care? Is all sort of general medicine inactive care? Well, I don't think so, because mm. we're actually quite busy. Um, <laughs> and so you know, we, when we do a lot of things. So you know, hospices, inpatient units, various other places, give blood transfusions, antibiotics, and reverse reversibles. Give bisphosphonates when the calcium is high, and various other things. So I think changing the narrative from saying we're talking about one procedure here, CPR, which is highly unsuccessful. And we might sort of say, let, let's not choose that one in the future. Mm. Let's not offer that one in the future versus saying all the other stuff that is still an offer. The active offer of treatments and things that we will try and do to make life more comfortable, make quality of life better is a huge arsenal of things that we can offer. And I wouldn't call that non-active treatment i would very much call that active treatment so i tell off the oncologists to talk about no longer for active treatment mm. well what does that mean i mean i'm not here twiddling my thumbs i'm working very hard and so is the the nursing team and so are the allied healthcare mm. professionals to to reverse potential reversibles and so if you can somehow weave in that narrative of all the things that you are doing you know mm. like take my talk cpr conversation where i'm treating, taking them up the treatment ladder and by the time they've heard all the things that are on offer. They, they might come to the top of the ladder, ITU and CPR, and kind of think, well, actually, those success rates, no thanks, but we'll have all the other stuff you mentioned that's on the menu. Then, actually, I think that changes the narrative considerably from one that's very negative. So mm. that's
3: something mm. that I actually do as well. So because the discussion about resuscitation and treatment escalation, etc., is a very, very important and very sensitive conversation that will take up a lot of your talking time with the patient or their family. I always precede it by what is the diagnosis for the patient that I'm looking after and what are we doing about that because because the patient and the family need to hear that too I think and then I'll often follow on with this is what we're, you know this is what's wrong this is what we're going to do but we also need to think about what will we do if this plan doesn't work or if you get sicker and this kind of thing but I think the other thing is that for juniors, if they feel confident to have that conversation, then they absolutely should. And they should also understand that sometimes it's not your communication skills, sometimes it's just a very difficult conversation for it could be for mm-hmm. a very large number of reasons. But I think that it's also very important in your own mind as the doctor to know where you what you feel is going to be right in relation to that for that patient. Or maybe actually, maybe you don't know and it's like a much more of a two-way thing. So what I find quite difficult is, for example, people who are middle-aged or who are approaching being elderly and it's not clear-cut whether they should go through, for example, CPR, intensive care. And so then I need to have a two-way discussion about it. And sometimes what I'll find is you bring it up and they say, no, there's no way. I was very sick 10 years ago with something else. I could not go through such a thing again. I would never go to intensive care. It's, and it, it's done. And it was the easiest conversation ever. Or sometimes it it really is a two-way conversation. Or sometimes you get the reverse where it's really obvious to you that certain things would not be appropriate for that person for a whole host of reasons. And they just can't accept it or the family can't accept it. And what you thought was going to be easy, it's really difficult. And this is like the thing. You, you can only try and do... Your best in the scenario that you're in.
1: I, I completely agree. I, I always bring it back to the patient if I'm if I'm if I'm unsure if I don't know. I always go back to the patient and, and their significant others and sort of talk it through with them. And I, I might even mention the conundrum that I'm, I'm I'm thinking about basically. And they 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 nearly always help you come to the the the, the right decision and conclusion.
0: I think it's very interesting that you brought up age um, because I think that this is something that. I mean, I I will hear it from patients. They'll say, oh, you're not going to do this operation because of my age or you're not going to do this, that and the other because of my age. Um, And I think that, you know, many people have said that the legacy left behind from the COVID-19 pandemic should be to improve the way that we discuss death and dying. But obviously there were concerning news reports, you know, around the time of the pandemic, that blanket DNA CPR orders to to certain groups of people, particularly those over a certain age, were being made. How much truth in that remains to be seen, but I have heard a lot of concern from patients regarding that. Is this something that other people have seen? And what are your thoughts on this? Do you think there is an age cut off? Or do you think it should completely be seen in the context of the physiology and the comorbidities?
3: It's really difficult, because obviously, you don't want to be ageist and you want to take, you know, each person irrespective of their age, uh, with their own individual factors, so as an individual patient and assess them on that basis. the, the thing that's a real tension is that you're not being ageist, but the fact is that as you get older things like CPR will have worse outcomes or the resultant disability you could have to then go through and recover from, et cetera, becomes an increasing problem. Or say like for you as a surgeon, realistically, and it's not being ageist, if someone is 85 years old, even if they're the fittest person going through an operation compared to if that same person was age 35, they just are radically different things. And that, but it, and it's, I think it's really hard even as a doctor to not get yourself into almost into a knot over this even though these things are definitely true
1: I, I think cpr could be seen as ageist but not necessarily the doctors and nurses who who discuss it i i think as a procedure it's ageist in, and 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 it can can also be discriminating against people with lots of long-term conditions as well mm. so um i mean there's one other area that i think is quite important as well so i i I think it's important to say that um, DNA CPR discussions and when someone has a DNA CPR form or an advanced decision to refuse treatment form, it's very important to mention that that does not mean that there's some sort of stigma that this person can't have any other procedures or investigations, for example. And, um, you know, many of my patients who have these forms and have had these discussions. Um, I, I know them for years, sometimes, and I maybe want to sort of draw your attention to one of my patients, uh, Keith Cass, who wrote a, a BMJ article uh, called "Do Not Resuscitate Me in Barbados." And 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 Keith Keith was a bit of a, a joker, and uh, you could never quite predict. But he basically wrote to the BMJ his his story, basically, where he'd met me. We talked about DNA CPR. He, he didn't take it brilliantly well initially, I must say. And then he sort of very much became a big supporter of, of, of the notion of DNA CPR. But for him, it was quite important to note that he was on immunotherapies, chemotherapies, radiotherapies. He was up for investigations and treatments, even experimental research treatments as well. But he kept his DNA CPR form tucked into his topic, including when he surprised me one day saying he was off to Barbados and would the All Wales DNA CPR form be valid in Barbados, which panicked me slightly. And, and then he came back from his trip and said he showed the DNA CPR form to the stewardesses on the flight over and they had a bit of a panic. Um, so I, I would just make that quite clear, I think. And, and I think there's some research from 10, 15 years ago that sort of suggests that, that staff or healthcare professionals when there's a DNA CPR in place May also discriminate against other procedures, and I cannot see that anywhere here. Certainly in Wales, that is not the practice. When I talk to to colleagues and nurses and GPs and district nurses, you know a DNA CPR does not mean that other procedures are not available,
4: and I think it's just important to mention that.
0: And we'll be back right after our message from our sponsor.
4: At Medical Protection, we're different with no financial caps or limits on the protection we offer members. We take a discretionary approach to providing assistance. This flexibility lets us help where other providers may not. Treating cases on their individual merits and adapting to a wider range of situations. As a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation, we exist to support your professional interests and protect your finances, career and reputation. Our doctor-to-doctor support and advice can help you navigate the way, whatever lies ahead. Plus, the number of times you contact our helpline won't affect what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org slash UK.
0: Okay, back to the show. Kat, I want to go back to you and um, you were obviously talking about how Mark had approached this conversation with you about end of life and about what you want or don't want. I wonder is was there a good time to have that conversation? Would there have been a better time or a worse time without obviously commenting on uh, mark 's ability as a clinician
1: <laughs> Oh dear
2: <laughs> Mark, cover your ears um, okay. no I mean it was well it 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 came at a good perfect time i think i mean i I think Mark did it really well in the sense that you know our, we started our relationship with right you're here you 're here for a specific problem let's sort that problem out um and we were lucky and also also mark is obviously very good at his job we sorted my symptoms out um and then we were sort of just left with time to chat and then so yeah we had established a relationship and you know as uh, lucian was saying earlier we don't always have that luxury to Mm. have uh, an established relationship and rapport with the patient certainly you and i in the perioperative setting don't always have that luxury we're often having that conversation when we're knocking on the door of ITU aren't we so Mm. um yeah in terms of timing wise I probably probably I don't know I mean for me for us it was a it was a good time um and things were stable at that point um and I had time to think and breathing space and I was probably maybe a bit calmer you know um I was in a good place to, to be thinking about it so, yeah, it was a good time um for See you. Me, thank you, thank you. Thank you, you let me off lightly
1: there. Yeah, <laughs> but I think
2: it's so personal, isn't it? It's such a highly personal um topic and conversation. Um, and I'm probably a very specific example of someone, uh, of a patient who's having that conversation. And there will be so many other opinions and examples of those conversations. So, yeah, I think it's judging judging how that person feels about it in a very potentially very short space of time if you've only just met them but the situation may dictate um your timing it depends on if you have that luxury if you don't Mm. mind me asking
3: were you on your own when you had that conversation with you or did you have someone else with you
2: Uh, I was on my own actually um and I actually think that was beneficial because I could be really honest and really open I actually I think I actually remember thanking Mark for bringing it up um, and telling him how relieved I was. Um, Subsequently, I did say, you know, the next time we we come back to this, can I bring my husband? Um, Because it's not something that, um we talk about at home very often because it's upsetting Um, for him he won't mind me saying but actually in the end mark was um sorry i used you mark but i used you to help (laughs) me um have that conversation with my husband in a way by having mark there um but yeah initially um having just the two of us meant i could just be really open and honest and say the things that would probably otherwise upset my family
1: Mm. yeah I, I I think I gave you a warning shot that we might bring up such a topic uh, at the next consultation, so I suppose you, you could have potentially chosen to to, to bring him in yes. or, or mm-hmm. link link him in basically because we do video mm-hmm. consultations as well sometimes, but I, I think you chose not to on that occasion and then broach the topic in your in your own way basically and that yeah. kind of get, left you left you the choice a little bit I think so, that yeah. as
3: clinicians uh, that facil- our, our role in initiating that discussion and In being the facilitators around these topics cannot be underestimated. There are people in the lay public Mm -hmm. who will bring these things up themselves. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, I think, even if they hold, even if they hold this knowledge or feel very strongly about it, it's a very difficult thing to to bring up. Because even say, if we're going to say with me and like, say, my grandma who's incredibly elderly if i brought it up i'm not saying this has happened but it could happen that say if i brought it up as her granddaughter you know my, my parents or my siblings could you know say something like you know are you trying to kill grandma you know something like that mm-hmm. which it, it could happen but that's what they it, and as the family member even though i'm a doctor it, it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean it's my role or that it's my place to bring that up and mm-hmm. i think yeah yeah as I, yeah as I said i think that facilitating role that we have as doctors in relation to this is really, really important. Mm,
2: Definitely.
0: I think circling back to what you said as well, Mark, about formalizing these decisions, my um, my dad's a retired oncologist and he has very strong views about what he wants and doesn't want. I mean, he's fit and well and he's in his 70s, but he has strong views about if he became unwell, what he does and doesn't want. And exactly as you say, Lucy, um, Lucianne, I, I said to him, if you strongly believe in that, that's like, absolutely fine, but that needs to be formalised because actually I, as the only other medic in the family, don't want to be the one that has to explain to my numerous brothers and sisters and, you know, aunties and uncles that you know dad didn't want this and i'm making that decision and i think that that Mm. can be a very difficult role for families um or particularly individuals uh, you know in that situation
1: and and i think the clinician can sometimes become the 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 mediator or the sort (laughs) of the accept the acceptable person to bring it up basically Mm. in in a wider family Mm. so i I do offer people the opportunity to bring in relatives and sometimes i i say look we're going to have a a big conversation maybe tomorrow about something really important. I prefer to do it in outpatient settings and you know, I would say inpatient settings I do it as well but I prefer to do it in outpatient setting which feels a bit more controlled and a bit earlier on in, in the whole conversation and not everyone does it I'm afraid and I, I do try and encourage co- colleagues to sort of try and bring up these topics as early as possible but but then to to bring it up and, and discuss it and see what people's wishes are and to bespoke it to to a very individual sort of level i think you know um yeah i yeah C- clara I, I wanted to bring something up just very quickly mm, if that's alright with course. you about um because you, you mentioned blanket decision making yes, and, yes. And, and and things like that and 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 that has very much been on my mind so I'm I'm a lead for DNA CPR and advanced care planning for for all of Wales, and I lead a sort of strategic group that uh, uh, talks and thinks about these matters, and we oversee the all Wales DNA CPR policy as well. and And of course, this topic came up um, at every single meeting, mm. and um, and the, the press reports uh, during the COVID nineteen mm. pandemic uh, came up as well, and we heard from 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 England as well, and uh, it, it is. Uh, for me, an absolutely horrific notion of someone saying DNA CPR must apply to whole groups. Mm. For me, it's such an important individualized discussion, like you said, with your dad, for instance, and, and various ver- various other sort of settings. It has to be so individualized. And there's so many different metrics and factors within that, you know, the notion of, of someone having said in England, oh, there's a sort of um, unit of people who are sort of elderly in a care home, Every all of them should have a DNA CPR form is, 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 is horrific to me. And I think every every time this discussion is held, every doctor or nurse or health allied healthcare professional who has this discussion must see it as the most important discussion in the healthcare journey of the individual and treat it as such and, and bespoke it and answer individual questions in the best possible way. Mm. The, 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 the notion of people with learning disabilities having DNA CPR forms and, and people writing on the top of the DNA CPR form um, autism or something mm. like that is, is, again, an absolute horror to me. And I don't know how that happened. I don't, I don't know. I didn't see specific examples of, of this, but of course, you hear, heard about it in the, in the press during the pandemic. And that cannot happen. And we've been very clear in Wales, we've put it in the policy that any discrimination against any protected characteristics is totally unacceptable. But also blanket decision-making and saying elderly people have to have it in ACPR, also for me, unacceptable. There's people that run past me on my Saturday <laughs> run who are in their 80s and would probably survive CPR better than me. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking about it. Mm. I think they probably probably mm. would if something bad happened to me. And, and so it has to be a very individualised thing. And we're really trying to put that forward here in Wales, put the, put the narrative forward that that is the case, um, really trying very hard.
0: One of the other interesting things I think that has come out of that is people's defensiveness um, about DNA CPR. You know, before you've even started the conversation, patients may well say to you, "Oh, well, you're going to tell me that you're not going to resuscitate me because I'm X age or I've got Y diagnosis. Um, If somebody is really insistent that they want CPR, even though you know that the chance of success is very very low and the chance of it being undignified is very very high i know that this is i know what the legalities of this position are having been through them multiple times at medical school but how do you deal with that um that challenge in a conversation about cpr
3: um so obviously this is something that happens not necessarily infrequently uh, in secondary care and with inpatient mm. care it mm. it depends if I know it's not really ideal, but if actually it can be left, like say if I don't know, say if arbitrarily, say the patient's going home that day, and it's just the conversation hasn't gone well, I probably actually will just leave it. But if it's very important for their own sake that they do have a DNAR in place because you suspect they will deteriorate and then they will go through CPR when it's inappropriate, if you can't reach a, sol- a resolution with the patient or their family. Then obviously, as you said, the legalities say that you offer them a second opinion. And if I really felt very strongly about it, then I would offer, I would, I would facilitate that second opinion for them to try and reach the like the like the consensus that needs to be reached around what is appropriate for them. You, it, the difficulty with this is that usually you will end up. Usually, you'll you'll the patient will come around to what you're saying, especially if another person comes to say what you've already said. But the diff- obviously, what's really hard with that is the amount of time that it takes up to have all of those discussions. And so then you end up in a tension between you don't want them going through inappropriate CPR because it's undignified for them. And because of the resource it takes you know, away from you know all the people that would attend the arrest call, et cetera, et cetera, versus the time you're putting in to try and sort out that ceiling of care, because that also takes your time away from, That you could be spending, for example, with other families that also need to see you about other matters, et cetera. So there isn't like one solution to it, but a lot, most of the time, if I really can't reach a resolution, I will obtain a second opinion for that patient.
1: Same here. Um, So we have the All Wales DNA CPR policy, and it takes you through the different steps of of what you can do if there's, there's, um, you know, if, if, if patients don't agree with you. And and the second opinion, sometimes the third opinion, sometimes the fourth opinion can be quite important. And I've seen this all play out. The All Wales DNSCPR policy will usually default towards the patient choice in the end. And it may then mean, and this is I, I would say very, very rare, but can sometimes come up due to maybe uh, cultural reasons or, or whatever. Um, it may mean that the person is for a call in the hospital and, and the arrest team may arrive. Uh, it must never be forgotten that the GMC and the NMC have been clear that no arriving doctor uh, and in Wales paramedic uh, or, uh, or, or nurse as well is obliged to give CPR in the absence of a DNA CPR form or ADRT form. Um, you can say no, I, I've reviewed the situation and I'm not going to give CPR. Now, that is difficult because it's an emergency situation. You're arriving very quickly. And, of course, who, who on the arrest team has read, read all the notes? That, that, that can be very difficult. But, um, yes, we, we usually default. If there's such conflict and if there's such a strong feeling about it, for whatever reasons, we would usually default towards the patient view on this one. And I don't think it's good enough for doctors just to say to the patient and the family, well, it's a medical decision anyway, mm. so tough.
0: No, and I, I have I've have heard that. I think it can then be incredibly difficult to build back that relationship, not just with the team and the patient, but with every team that comes afterwards, with every admission that that patient will ever have to hospital. And I,
1: I mean, some people disagree with me on that quite quite heavily. So, you know, Lucianne, if you, if you want to give me some grief now, then feel free to. <laughs> no, All no, cast. I think
3: <laughs> it's essentially. I, my practice is essentially what, what you've described. Like the, the aim would always be that if I professionally feel that a patient should not be going through CPR, because obviously this is the main thing that we're talking about, ideally that patient should have a DNA CPR in place because that's appropriate for them. If you can't reach that resolution, you should take the steps to try and see if it can be reached. But ultimately, if you can't reach it, you, you can't. And then the question is, why can't you like what is there any of those things that need to be overcome And a lot of the time as you said it would either be something cultural that means that it's causing a huge barrier or there's something emotional going on probably to do with the family dynamic or what the reason is as to why that conversation needs to be had like this sort of thing and so then a lot of the time when when this conversation is we what we describe as difficult as the doctors but when it's not and often then you'll experience it as not going well it's often because something very difficult is going the family's finding it very difficult or the patient is fine and all the patient is finding it very hard to accept that that's the stage of life that they're up to where these conversations need to be had and normally it's not it's a difficult situation mainly because the patient and the family they're all suffering that that's not. I know that it's easy to say that when I'm not in that situation, it's very difficult when you're in that scenario where you're not reaching agreement with your patient and the family. But normally, the reason why it isn't happening is because the situation as a whole is very challenging.
0: I'm sure we've all seen deaths that are not, not as con. You know, I hate to use the word controlled, but not as good uh, inverted commas as as we or the patients or the family would like them to be. Do you think there are situations where actually achieving a good death, inverted commas, is always, it is possible? Or do you think that there are times where actually whatever we do, it is going to be difficult and we we can't
3: always change the outcome? I think that there are scenarios, I think that perhaps will inevitably always be difficult. But a lot of the time, I think, I think because I do elderly care, a lot of the time, Um, the family will voluntarily say things to me like my mum has suffered enough or my dad has been through they've been through all that they could go through it's their time now or sometimes even even the patient will say that they'll just say you know I've done everything I needed to do you know this is what it is you know that kind of thing Um, or sometimes what will happen is because obviously, as I said I work in in a hospital in secondary care the family feel and they feel it's a very sort of safe environment for them because you know obviously there are nurses that are there all the time you know this kind of thing so i think overall you can have scenarios where there's a general acceptance of what is happening
1: i think about death and dying a lot um and that's probably the nature of my job (laughs) I, i i i yeah i take i take my work home with me sometimes i think about the different scenarios and things that i have seen and in answer to your question clara i think it is very possible to achieve a good death, um, to make the dying phase better, and we see this a lot. I'd say in in, in palliative care, but also in, in 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 all the generalisms when you know when there's been a discussion about things, when family members or significant others are prepared and have had time to think about it in advance, when. People who work with the patient and and others have brought up the topic maybe earlier on to sort of get an idea of what the person might want, where perhaps a patient who has specific strong views has had the opportunity to fill in an advanced decision to refuse treatment of things that they wouldn't want uh, when they have strong views on, on it, or where they've been able to fill in a lasting power of attorney for health and welfare document and be very clear who should make the decisions and the refusals at a later point when they are unable to, to, to respond. And I think when when such areas are discussed and openly talked about, you find that um, everyone is in the know and everyone knows a little bit better what is going to happen in, in different types of scenarios. So my plea would be for, for people listening to this, including those people who are perhaps not clinical, but, you know, maybe facing a uh, uh, long-term condition or a life-threatening illness is to to make this a more normalized conversation, to maybe make this a conversation over over lunch, and I, yeah, a Sunday lunch or something like that, and I sort of say, look, when if that were to happen to me, um, my wife gets this all the time from me, basically. <laughs> I've, 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 I've filled in an, an, an advanced decision to refuse treatment in specific situations In if I end up on an ITU, if I've fallen off my bike. And so she she knows and she can whip out that ADRT document when, when when she needs to, uh, when I've been lying there for over fourteen days or, or whatever, and I think when, yeah, I mean and this sounds like something that has been said many many times, but I think more discussion, more open talk about this in in general society, more media, more films, more uh, more culture around this whole topic, which we've been dealing with for millennia, this topic of a good death and good dying, will always be, be welcome and should never become a taboo topic, topic and that's why I bring it up and I, I think I've developed good styles in, in bringing the topic up and in a non-offensive way. That can be surprising to some people but it, it shouldn't be and we should talk about it more, more often.
0: I I yeah. think it's brilliant how you brought that up over Sunday lunch. I'm not sure if I'd want to be yeah. invited round for Sunday lunch. At your house. Oh. <laughs> I don't know about you. Kat. I,
2: I really I really do agree with you though, Mark, in terms of um, normalising the conversation. Um, increasingly, I feel increasingly strongly about that. Just you know, just removing not necessarily the stigma, but the the discomfort of talking about it. Um, you know, I I think I mentioned what recently that um, I find interesting that. Organ donation is, you know, for example, um, on the your driver's license application form now. Um, so everyone is, you know, happy to, to tick that box to say, yes, of course, I'd like to, you know, donate my organs. But no one's actually told their family about it. Um, and I don't know if it's somehow an easier easier thing to talk about or think about because there's an altruistic element to it Um, but you actually have to go through the process of dying first before you can actually donate your organs Um, and I don't know if there's anything to be learned from the campaign for organ donation you know becoming on that on that piece of paper and and now it's an opt-out process isn't it that's taken many many years I know but you know I think normalizing the conversation would be amazing I think it's going to take time but I think that is the answer. And, you know, going back to your question about a good death, um, the theme that has, you know, united everybody's answer to that question is an element of proactiveness in, just, in having that conversation. Um, you're very lucky if you don't plan for a good death and you have a good death, then that's great. But the, the, the common denominator seems to be some kind of planning. And it's all down to personal preference, your personal experiences, um, you know, cultural experiences and and beliefs as well. So yeah, I mean realistic to achieve a good death, I hope so. Um, but certainly realistic to actually have a conversation and find out what that means to somebody is that is realistic. Whether or not you actually achieve it, um I don't know.
1: Kat, can I ask you something? I've I've Mm -hmm. not asked you this ever before, but um (laughs) build up. Um but um, I mean, you're a young person and, and you're facing the prospect of death and dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and we talked just now about normalizing that. Is, is it easy as a younger person to bring up that conversation or normalize that conversation, for instance, with, with your own family and relatives? Or is it difficult?
2: Um, again, I think highly personal. Um It is a little bit easier for me, perhaps, in that um, as a family, we have a personal experience of um, a good death. Um, So my father died just over 10 years ago. um, And, you know, obviously it was difficult. um, But all along, I said from the very beginning, even to my family at the time, um, that actually, you know, in terms of death's go, that was as good as a death as you can hope. for. you know, he was um, palliative uh, cancer as well. Um, it did seem to happen quite quickly but the you know all the services got together really quickly towards the end he was in a hospice and I could not have faulted it you know the care and the way it was conducted was dignified and I think that was my first experience of well personal but also a very good death and it obviously made a big impact on me so having that precedent in the family did make it does make it slightly easier to talk about, I think, instead of saying, hey, guys, you know, when I pop my clogs, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> having no experience of of it, um, you know, we have something, we have a high bar to compare to. And, you know, there was some comfort in in all agreeing that that was a good death. Um, and it probably does bring some comfort to know that that is an option.
0: Do you think culturally it's it's one of these things that, as British people, we find quite difficult to... To to bring up, do you, you know, I mean, I know Mark, you mentioned the Sunday lunch conversation, but you okay. know, it, it. How do you bring that conversation up? Where do you bring it up? Do you only bring it up when something happens, or do you know? Is there another way around it that we can we can talk about it before
2: it's it's a necessity or an acute situation? It occurred to me the other day when we were when I was thinking about this podcast. Um, And I don't know how it would go down, Um, but say, (laughs) say, for example, you're sat in your GP surgery and, you know, you see posters for organ donation and stuff like what if there was a poster that said, I don't know how you would word it, but basically giving someone a visual cue as to have you ever thought about how you would like the last few days to look or mm. do you have any particular thoughts or any wishes and actually whether or not that would just be an invitation for someone to actually to just bring it up you know in those six minutes that they have with their GP for their sore thumb but <laughs> whether or <laughs> not it would just invite invite just sort of open that door just a little bit because mm. you know there's no opportunity really just to bring it up is there um often unless you've particularly thought about it um, but yeah I wonder if like a little cue you know, I don't know how they did it with the organ donation campaigning, but whether or not it's just a cue and it's, and yeah, again, normalizing it, you know, it's something that is in the sphere, um, it's in the air, you can talk about it if you want to, um, just giving people the option.
1: And and maybe, maybe we should also accept that some people will naturally take some offense to it. Yes. I mean, I think maybe we, we, we hinder 99% of the good conversations because of the one complaint that comes into the mm. GP surgery because of the poster. I I don't know. Maybe we need to get over that because obviously the people who might complain about it are the ones who most think it ought to be a taboo. And mm. I think all of us here in this call don't think it should be a taboo. Maybe we need to be a bit more brave about this.
0: I was going to ask you about this, Mark, because you obviously have this conversation probably more regularly than, than any of us. Maybe Lucianne has it a lot actually, but obviously your conversation with Kat went well, but, does it always go well is that you know it-
1: no 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 and, <laughs> and, and i've had complaints in the past lucy ann may have also had complaints in the past about it it's, it's usually from the sun in london um so i've had a it's, it's usually you've had a good conversation with the with the, the with the person and they've been fully un- understanding mm. and then they've and then you've said how are you going to read leave it with your significant others and they say oh i'll, I'll contact them and i'll talk to them about it and then the person on the other end of the phone gets perhaps a, a redacted or shortened version of the story, basically. So you, you've had a long conversation about this, maybe even built this up basically over several consultations, and then the, the, the son in London or the, the daughter in Edinburgh gets a very redacted version, and then then flips basically. And then often you find maybe this is, comes as such a shock because they just don't didn't know that things were quite so bad, Mm. or maybe they hadn't gotten the full, so they're getting a double dose of bad news or a triple dose of bad news. The cancer has spread and they've had one of them DNR discussions uh, that are read about in in the newspapers Mm. and that everyone is getting. And then, of course, you get a barrage of letters or emails or phone calls, basically. And and then it's it's usually very sortable through a telephone call. And you know, the son in London calls, and you have a long conversation on the phone, and they kind of, yeah, I, I get it, and I'm sorry, I just I just had such a reaction about it. And your immediate response to things is often difficult to the longer term response. So I've brought it up sometimes, and the patient has been maybe quite horrified about the prospect of it. And then two weeks later, said. Thank you. Thanks for bringing it mm-hmm. up because I just no one else had brought it up with me. No one else had mentioned it. And actually, I've thought a few things through, and I now feel better for having thought about it, for having also written my will, uh, for having discussed these things, and and actually maybe having made a bit more planning for when things do get a bit. Worse. I think
3: that's exact. I think that's exactly it. Like it, it isn't always going to go well, unfortunately, because it is a difficult topic. But I think you have to try even if you do end up with a complaint or a time when it went badly, to still continue to have that conversation with as many patients and families as possible and not let the bad experiences that you've had deter you from doing that. But I can see how for some people it it can really, really be off-putting for them depending on what's happened. But it's such an important conversation that I think you should always try, even if amongst all the experiences you'll have had, some of them may not mm. have gone so well
0: well that is about as much as we have time for today and I, I am I'm very sad to have to put a stop to this really rich discussion but thank you all so much uh for for joining me and Kat, particularly thank you for your candid um, reflections because I imagine that you know it's not an easy thing to talk about on a podcast but I, I really really appreciate your uh, reflections today so thank you We are really keen to hear from our listeners. For ideas of future discussions and reflections on the topics we've discussed today on the past, please get in touch. If you like our show, I'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people that you know. Telling your friends about it really helps people find the show. If you would like to hear other episodes, subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you'll be notified of when our next episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us. Boop mm-hmm. boop